chapter 21 we're dealing with today and we'll come to Paul's speech a little bit later. Um, Also, hopefully, try and untangle that plot uh, that uh, unfolds in the second half of chapter 21 that may have seemed a bit obscure in the thinking of some of us. Uh, Hopefully, we can demystify some of those things. But today, we're talking about following in the footsteps of Christ, um, or following in Christ's footsteps, which is exactly what Paul is doing. It's exactly what I, you might remember me uh, recalling last week, how uh, Paul even says uh, to the people he ministers to, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, and Paul uh, didn't get, uh, following Christ isn't his own idea, it's of course something that Jesus himself said, uh, follow me, uh, follow me in every detail, even in the detail that you take up your own cross to follow me. And so following Christ uh, can encompass so many things and and at least in one sense following Christ uh, can encompass the things that we choose to do. Uh, How do we actually act? How do we live? Uh, What can we do to live like and follow Jesus Christ in our lives? Uh, And so we'll come to speaking about that when it comes to choosing and making decisions and choices about life. But first we're going to talk about uh, actually some of the things that following Christ uh, means for us in its benefits. Uh, following Christ isn't just about doing as he does, but it's about uh, getting as he gets. Um, and of course, we know uh, that the end of, uh, or, or towards the end of Jesus' life, uh, what he faced was death. But actually, there's an awful lot uh, that we get to enjoy as being followers of Jesus. And one of those things is belonging. So by the end of this chapter, 21, Paul is imprisoned. In fact, never to know full freedom again. Uh, but where we meet him at the end... Uh, He is a victim of hate and ignorance. And this, of course, is nothing less than he's been prepared for since turning to Christ. Uh, Christ said uh, when he appeared to Paul um, that he was going to tell Paul what he must suffer for his name. Uh, Paul knew that his life was going to be characterised by suffering for the sake of Jesus. And this wasn't just special for Paul. Like I've said, Jesus encourages all of us to count the cost of following him because uh, we will face trials of many kinds. But... Before we get to Paul, the victim of hate, we have Paul, the recipient of generous and sincere love. Uh, And that's really the picture we get through the whole of the first uh, half of chapter 21. Um, We'll get to the themes of sacrifice soon, but let's soak up just some of the best that Christian hospitality has to offer. Uh, We left off in chapter 20 with Paul farewelling the elders of the Ephesian church, that that heartfelt exchange he had with them. And it's an emotional farewell with hugs and kisses in verse 37 of chapter 20. uh, And it says, much weeping on the part of all. But verse 38 says the thing that grieved them most was that Paul had just told them that they would never see his face again. This was a farewell with all the finality of death, uh, not a farewell without hope, uh, but with a strong sense of finality. But even in that sadness, it's a beautiful sadness, isn't it? Um, it's not a grief without hope, it's a sadness that's the evidence of love, of something strong and beautiful and powerful between, uh, that, that binds these people together. The evidence of love we're first confronted with in chapter 21 is of a more positive nature uh, than the evidence that you find in grief and tears. Uh, we find the evidence of love in hospitality. There's a lot of ground to cover, Uh, for Paul, between Miletus and Jerusalem, but everywhere they stop, they find love in the form of Christian brothers and sisters. In verse 3, they land in Tyre. Now, there's no evidence before this point that Paul has travelled through Tyre. He's a newcomer uh, to this city, Uh, but he did know of a church. 
And he knew one thing about, uh, about this place. If there was a church, then he would find friends. And so, um, and so Paul and his travel companions, they seek out the church and they find hospitality there for a full seven days uh, with people that they'd never before met. Which was, you know, probably much like the experience of some of you and, and even myself. When you move to a new town, you make a beeline for the nearest church uh, and you know that it won't be uh, longer than Sunday uh, before you've met someone uh, that you can form a connection with. Or at least that's the way it should be. You know, that was my experience moving to Emerald when I was offered my first job up here in optometry in Emerald, uh, nearly 10 years ago now. First, I had to Google Emerald uh, to find out exactly where it was. But my next step on Google, and maybe this was the same for some of you, um, was to Google to see what churches were in Emerald, to know what was going on, where it would be that I would meet uh, people of a like mind uh, where I could grow in my faith in Jesus. I'd never been this far north. I'd never been this far west. Um, but I knew that I would find uh, someone out here uh, that I could connect with. In fact, I didn't know a soul, but I knew of one person through a friend. I knew of someone to catch up with. His name was Dave. Uh, I tracked him down at one of the churches not long after I got here. And, and Dave turned into one of my best mates. In fact, he was my best man when we got married a few years ago. Um, and now I'm speaking to you mostly as people who have moved to town really in the last probably three or four years. Uh, that does uh, constitute the majority of people here. And I hope and I expect that that's been a pretty similar experience for many of you. New to town, but having settled in uh, faster than you might otherwise expect with the benefit of Christian contacts and with church. Let it be a lesson for your next move. Uh, if you are uh, planning or if you ever come time to move again, make a beeline for church. Don't let uh, the weekends escape you uh, without having made it a priority to make contact with Christian people on that next move. Verse 5, Paul and his friends, they've only made new friends in Tyre. Um, they, they leave this time not with tears but with prayers on the beach uh, from these people that they'd only met a week before. Um, and, uh, and then in verse 7 it says, When we finished our voyage from Tyre, we arrived, arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip. Do you get the idea? It's hospitality after hospitality after hospitality. Later in verse 16, when they finally arrive in Jerusalem, they're invited into the house of the man with not enough vows in his name, Manason or something of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom uh, they lodge. This theme of belonging uh, really does teach us a couple of things. It teaches us uh, a truth and it teaches us a lesson. It gives us one thing to remember and one thing to do in response. First, let's just enjoy the truth. Let's just remember that becoming a Christian means becoming part of a huge and a happy family. We might feel, um, you know, we've been taught really in our, in our culture now to get comfortable with using words like bro, calling someone a brother or a sister, who of course isn't even related to us. Uh, but these words were made familiar for non-family members by Christ, as I understand it. Um, you might uh, recall there's a story where Jesus uh, is teaching uh, a bunch of people in a house and his mother and his brothers think he's gone mad and they're trying to rein Jesus in and they come to the house and they, and they start asking after Jesus and they say, pass a message on to Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside. And someone passes a message on to Jesus, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus responds with, who are my mother and my brothers? My mother and my brothers are these people before me who are hearing and responding to the word of God. 
which I understand, particularly in, uh, the, in Jesus' day, was a pretty radical statement uh, to acknowledge that someone who wasn't an actual family member uh, might be considered as close as family. Uh, I've taken to referring to you mostly, uh, you, I don't know if you've noticed this little tick of mine, but often on a Sunday morning I'll, invite, I'll welcome you as friends. I'll say, good morning friends, it's good to uh, have you here with us. Um, brothers, for some reason, to call you brothers and sisters, it, it has a sort of a, a pious feel about it that, that sometimes I balk at. I don't, I don't feel as comfortable um, saying, making that statement, but I do plan on making it more comfortable uh, just by uh, using it more. And I used it this morning. I don't know if it seemed weird to you or not. Um, but there is something lovely about friends, isn't there? When we think about friends, um, friends are a choice. Uh, you discover a thing in common and you agree Um, usually without having to talk about it, to form a bond over that thing. Uh, Many of you I don't hesitate to call a friend. Brothers or sisters are different. You you don't choose a brother or sister. But that actually makes the connection with a brother or sister special in an altogether different way. Brother or sister is a status that you you cannot undo. It's just a thing you are. You can reject a brother... You can learn to hate a brother. You can stop talking to a brother. But you can't unbrotherfy a brother. He is always your brother. Whether or not you, you and I feel the unique bonds of friendship and whether or not we like it, we in fact share a stronger bond than just friendship and that's brother and sister in Christ, the bond of family. And that is a truth uh, that we get to enjoy and, and, and I hope and I expect it's a truth that many of you even get a sense of uh, as you meet uh, new friends uh, and make connections with your family. That's the truth to enjoy. And what's the lesson? Well, being a part of a family is a privilege that comes with obligation to show love and hospitality. So let's just never grow weary in doing good for one another. You know, we live in a place uh, in a, here in Emerald uh, where uh, many of you know, and we've already acknowledged today, that there is a lot of turnover in population. People seem to come for a period of a few years, they breeze in, they breeze out. Um, and that's all good, that comes with its own uh, advantages, but it can come for the people who stay with a bit of fatigue you know, a relational weariness uh, that can come from welcoming someone into your life, making an investment only to uh, have to say goodbye just one or two or three years down the track. It's a kind of fatigue that can cause you to lose your stamina uh, in welcoming people. You can start to grow a little bit tired um, and, uh, and, and you can start to just become very comfortable and insular with the one or two people you know you can rely on to stick around for the long haul. We're a new church made up mainly of new people to town uh, and, and I, I'm so grateful for the, for the fact that it is on our radar for most of you um, that, uh, that we need to be welcoming and forward moving uh, as, we, uh, as we bring new people in. But let's just never lose that. Uh, let's settle in uh, for, uh, for the hard yards. Uh, be prepared to do the hard yards of weeping farewells. Uh, let's not grow calloused from the turnstiles as we see people come and go, but let's always uh, have an open and full heart for our brothers and sisters uh, as they move to town uh, and as we welcome them in. There's another beautiful aspect of love uh, and belonging that's shown in the first half of Acts 21. Um, it's not just in hospitality, but in the concern. Uh, that the community seems to have for one another, especially the concern that everyone seems to have for Paul 
and his well-being. Everywhere Paul goes, the intelligence seems to be that he's going to meet a sticky end when he gets to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul himself says it in chapter 20, in verses 22 and 23. Uh, in Tyre, in verse 4 of 21, uh, that's what they're saying. Agabus, uh, the dramatic prophet with the belt and, and tying himself up, he says it in verse 11. Now, there's a couple of other things to unentangle in all this, and we're going to talk a bit more about it soon. But let's again just sit and enjoy the expression of love as brothers and sisters rally around Paul with concern for his welfare as they try to uh, discourage him from walking to a place uh, where he uh, is going to meet, um, uh, where he's going to be imprisoned and mistreated. But this does present uh, a unique challenge to Paul as he chooses his path forward. Uh, Because as well-meaning, as I'm certain the people are, as they rally around Paul, uh, it does all get a little bit confusing as he makes his choice. So let's talk about choosing um, as it happens, initially, there's something a bit mistaken and misguided in the, in the people's warnings against Paul uh, or to Paul. I have no doubt that um, it represents sincere love on their part, but if prophecies are to be taken seriously, and I believe they are, then it's a certainty that Paul is going to be mistreated when he gets to Jerusalem, an absolute certainty. And yet, even knowing this, there is a division about what is the right thing to do. On the one hand, there's everyone. Uh, Even Luke, the author, lumps himself in this group, telling Paul that since the Spirit is so clear that prison awaits him, then he should not go to Jerusalem. Be careful. It's a no-brainer. But on the other hand, there's Paul uh, on his own, stubbornly saying that he's going to go anyway. He may not be thrilled by what awaits him, but he's prepared uh, and he's happy to do it. In verse 13, he says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul's in pretty good company. The parallels between Paul at this point uh, and Jesus in his life and his march to Jerusalem uh, are really quite uncanny. I'm sure Luke does it on purpose as he writes it down. You know, we have uh, Jesus uh, knowing uh, that when he came to Jerusalem, he was going to meet his death. We have Paul, a couple of decades later, knowing that when he gets to Jerusalem, Maybe not death, but something uh, unpleasant awaits him. Certainly prison. We've got Jesus who's making a beeline for uh, a key uh, Jewish feast, the Passover. Paul is trying to get there in time for Pentecost. He's rushing his journey to get there in time for a feast, for a Jewish feast. Um, We have Jesus when he starts opening up with his friends and his followers about the fact that uh, disaster awaits him in Jerusalem. They start to discourage him from making that sacrifice. And we have Paul on the, same, uh, on the same course with people discouraging him from making that sacrifice. We have Jesus when he gets to Jerusalem falsely accused. We have Paul also falsely accused. But both of them, both Jesus and Paul and the people around them are forced to reach this same point that we find in verse 14. Let the will of the Lord be done. It's what Jesus prayed in the garden. Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me yet not what I will, but what you will. It's what we prayed in the Lord's Prayer this morning as well. Now, we're all faced with choices. Some seem like nothing. You know, what, sec- what, what socks will I wear today? Uh, will anyone notice if my socks are odd today? Does it even matter if people notice if my socks are odd today? It's probably not a good, good example because we all know that clearly the best choice is just to wear thongs. But all of us face tough choices as well. Big choices. Will I take that job? Will I move here or there? 
What church will I go to? How can I be both responsible and generous with my money? And then there's the flashing lights that accompany every big choice that can scare some of us off. What if I make the wrong choice? How can I know what the right thing is to do? And there's a couple of things in here that can help demystify decision-making for the Christian, that can help uh, take away the stress from making choices. One, behave like Christ, we learn in verse 13. And in verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. Behave like Christ and remember, let the will of the Lord be done. Let's talk about behaving like Christ. It's not about knowing the future or weighing up every possible contingency to know exactly what the right choice must be and, and of course, there's only one. You know, we can, we can leave the pressure of that behind. Um, the right choice isn't dependent on having a word from the Lord. It doesn't count on having a stirring in your spirit. But that old, trendy question still has a lot of merit. What would Jesus do? Paul hasn't set his heart on suffering, but he is prepared to suffer. He is prepared to behave and do what he's learnt from Christ. When it comes to learning wisdom for decision-making, are you prepared uh, to do what Christ does? Behave like Christ. But also what we see in verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. This isn't to dismiss the role of wise decision-making. Um, we've spent a few weeks uh, doing Proverbs uh, over, over the holidays um, and, and been encouraged, I hope, uh, to pursue wisdom. But it should give a peace and a confidence that actually it is, it is God who is in control of all things. Like Paul, we have to be willing to make sacrifices and that is the biggest key to making good choices. But we need to have that along with trusting God that his perfect plan uh, will always work out. Here's where, a lesson, though, where our lesson uh, about uh, decision-making and choices can get even a little bit trickier. In our love for one another... Let's not shy away from encouraging others towards sacrifice, towards behaving like Christ when it's tough. It does strike me that in practice, this is something you can only do in fairness if you're prepared to make sacrifices for yourself. It might in some cases be easier to accept personal sacrifice than, th- than that of others, uh, to be willing to take on a certain amount of pain and suffering yourself that you wouldn't necessarily expect others to do. Um, and I think that's kind of okay. If you experience the reverse of that, where you're very comfortable with expecting others to make sacrifice, but not at all comfortable with it yourself, then probably um, you shouldn't be encouraging others to make sacrifices. Don't learn that lesson from this chapter. Um, Don't learn that, yeah, uh, you've got to get comfortable with making sacrifices, with following Christ when it's tough yourself, before you can really be the one to step out uh, encouraging others to do that. But let's do, let's give courage uh, to one another. Uh, when it comes to doing what even might seem really tough. Now, at the end of this, Paul's made his choice, but Paul's choice really does look like a mistake. It ends in a royal mess, or it looks that way. It's obvious in the reading of verses 1 to 16 that Paul is in the right place in his desire to go to Jerusalem and his willingness to suffer the consequences, but what isn't as clear is whether he really behaves prudently once he gets there, once his choice is, is really quite right once he gets there. He gets to Jerusalem, he sits down for a meeting with James Um, and Paul regales James with tales of Gentile conversions and the movement of the Holy Spirit in the Gentile lands and James listens enthusiastically but James is also a distracted listener. 
Who knows whether James has received a word from the Lord or not, but either way, he's been able to spot trouble brewing right here in Jerusalem for Paul. In verses 20 to 22, uh, James presents his plan. Um, he's, or, or sorry, he presents the problem to Paul. He says, essentially, you've been working hard and seen many people from non-Jewish backgrounds put their faith in Christ, but here in Jerusalem, we've got a different makeup. Here in Jerusalem, by far, the majority of believers are Jewish, from Jewish backgrounds, and they're determined to stay Jewish. They're very comfortable with being Jewish. And they've heard rumours about you, Paul, because everyone knows that you haven't demanded Jewishness of the Gentiles, of the non-Jews who have followed Christ, in terms of food laws and circumcisions. But the message has got tangled up, and there's rumour has spread that you, Paul, are actively discouraging Jews from following the law. Now, we know that's not true. But that's what they're saying. And we also know, uh, and, and so th- there is trouble brewing. And in verse 22, he ends with, what is to be done? James may well ask what is to be done, but it turns out he's got an answer prepared for Paul. His solution in verses 23 and 24 might seem strange uh, in our ears, but essentially it's an attempt to jump through some Jewish hoops that are consistent with the law of Moses and, and in fact over and above the law of Moses as a show of goodwill from Paul to demonstrate his personal okayness with the Jewish law. And so we learn a lot about Paul in this chapter. Uh, while he's been stubbornly opposed to everyone else's influence before now, sticking to his guns, I'm going to Jerusalem, whether you like it or say it or not, um, here he quietly and readily agrees to the plan that's put, that's put before him. And it's obviously not about self-preservation, uh, because he's shown that with his conduct leading up to this point. But he agrees because while the accusations against him may well be ungrounded, at this point it's just not worth trying to explain um, to explain himself emotions are running too hot for people to hear an explanation anyway and so for now Paul chooses to bite his tongue and go along with a plan uh, to to earn the goodwill uh, of his accusers now what's going on with this plan you can have a read of numbers chapter 6 for a bit of background Um, there is no command in scripture to take any of these special vows uh, that is talking about but uh, there is an allowance if you want to make a special vow of devotion to the Lord then you can do so and there's a bunch of rules uh, in the book of Numbers chapter 6 that talk a bit about that it's an option and James says to Paul well there's four men here who have done so they've made such a vow but they can only get released from the vow after either a certain time frame has passed or um, if if a date is set uh, and a and a uh, a fee is paid, a sum is paid uh, for their release. And at that point, they mark the completion of their vow by shaving their head. So Paul agrees to accompany these guys to the temple, um, to actually spend a bit of time uh, in self-purification, purifying himself because of the time he's spent in Gentile lands before this point, um, and to pay out of his own pocket uh, to mark the completion uh, of these vows of these four men as a demonstration of his goodwill. But it's safe to say uh, this plan does not work. Seven days in, some of the anti-Paul Jews uh, spot him in the temple, doing what he can to quietly prove his point and win them over, and they stir up the crowd by accusing him on the very trumped-up charge that he's out to dismiss. Verse 28, the first half, they say, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. It's simply not true. That's not what Paul is about. But then, um, but the shambles doesn't stop there. 
in the, in the next half of uh, verse 28, um, they say, uh, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Verse 29 tells us that they've added one plus one to equal 25 because Paul has done no such thing. They'd previously seen Paul with a non-Jewish person and assumed that Paul had smuggled him into the temple, which of course he never did. There's a riot. Paul is mobbed. The crowd seizes Paul. They drag him unceremoniously out of the place of ceremony and they try to kick him to death. Now the commander nearby of the Roman troops catches wind of what's going on. He runs down with some officers to stop the lynching. Now the whole scenario just stinks of chaos. Verse 34, it says there are some shouting one thing, some are shouting another. No doubt there's a bunch of people there who don't even know what is going on, but they're a part of the excitement anyway. Of everyone who's involved, it's Paul, the victim, who gets arrested. Uh, maybe in part from it for his safety, but certainly in part uh, because of this confusion. The Roman officer is surprised to learn that Paul isn't the Egyptian he'd heard of in verse 38, who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. The confusion is extreme. Now, we're talking about choosing and making good choices. This choice of Paul's to go along with James's plan has all the hallmarks of a royal stuff-up. Of all the things to finally land Paul in prison, it's his best-intentioned attempts to win the favour of his accusers. It looks every bit like a mistake. But we should best understand this mistake in terms of what we've already seen in verse 14, that the Lord's will will be done. And that's exactly what we see. There's a huge amount of relief that comes. You know, we're talking about decision making and the enormous stress that can come on us when we're worried about whether we're making the right choice or not. Who knows uh, whether Paul's or James's plan ever had a hope of working out. In the end, it landed Paul in prison in the most bizarre um, and anticlimactic of circumstances. But in the end, is there really any doubt about whether God's will was done? Absolutely not, or at least not for Paul. Um, I'm going to read just a short selection of verses from the book of Philippians. It's a letter that Paul wrote from prison um, after this event. Uh, Paul is in prison. He's in prison for a long time. Uh, and we're going to uh, journey through some of that in the, in the remaining chapters of the book of Acts. But in Philippians, have a look, have a listen to what Paul says from jail. And ask yourself, is there any doubt in his mind about whether God's will has been done? Philippians 1, uh, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being imprisoned, has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Here's a man in jail who can see uh, clearly the way God's will is unfolding with his imprisonment. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1. Paul says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no outcome uh, that Paul can face uh, that will threaten his resolve or his confidence in the will of the Lord being done. And at the end of chapter 4, and remember, if you can, this is a man in prison. Chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 11. 
Um, He says, I've learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's in that same chapter where he says, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. And how could you say those things in such circumstances, especially in prison, if you didn't have absolute confidence uh, in the will uh, of God being done? Let's pray. Dear God, we want to give you thanks first and foremost that uh, you are in control. You are the God of the universe. Uh, You created this world, uh, you set it in motion and then you you didn't just leave it to spin and lose control but God, you have uh, remained in control at every step. Father, sometimes we might well feel out of control. We might feel uh, the anxiety that can come from uncertainty about our future. Uh, Father, we pray that you will help us to be a people who actually uh, can walk tall through uncertainty and anxiety uh, knowing that your will will be done. Father, we give you thanks that uh, yours is a good and perfect will. Yours is a a will uh, that desires uh, above all things your own glory uh, and you have caught us up in that same vision and that same project. And so that we know uh, that in following you through all things, uh, there is a crown in store even for us as we follow and praise you. Uh, God, we pray that you will help us to have faith and courage to do what is right. Help us uh, to follow uh, your son Jesus in all of his ways, even taking on sacrifice when it's hard. And God, we also want to take this time to remember uh, what seems so long ago now, but just that first half of chapter one, uh, that hospitality that Paul enjoyed in those last days before he was imprisoned. Father, we give you thanks for the hospitality that uh, I hope all of us have enjoyed at different times from uh, your own people. And we pray that you will help us uh, to be a people uh, and a community and even a family here uh, that feels very keenly the bonds of family uh, and who is only too happy to extend uh, our arms to others in welcome. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.